Well, so over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at what Jesus taught about the point of life. What is the meaning of life? How are we supposed to live? And it's uh, thoughts on this issue that provoke philosophy and uh, leading cultural thought for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, we saw in the very first session we looked at the uh, uh, answer that Douglas Adams, the writer to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, gave when uh, he said, uh, what is the meaning of life? And he parodied the uh, way that philosophers come up with answers that seem meaningless to most people. And he said, the meaning of life is 42. That's the answer to the big question, 42. And uh, it's funny because how could the meaning of life have a numerical answer? Yeah, Jesus wants to show us not so much the meaning of life, but the way of life that we were created to have. Who we are meant to be. And then that sense of God's purpose is what drives people. We sense that our lives should have meaning. We sense that we're built for something. And yet, we often can't get a grip on what that means and what that is. And so Jesus wants to teach us how to do that. We looked at different areas in which we can destroy our relationships with God and with others. This is how Jesus is doing it. He works through different problem areas of human relationships and says, look, this is how you were built to function in these areas. This is why life goes wrong in these areas. He says, underneath all of these problems that we've looked at, we've looked at the problem of anger and how it leads to murder and how we despise one another and scorn one another and that leads to murder. We've looked at how we come to use one another in our minds sexually and that's what lust is. It's using other people rather than giving ourselves to other people and how that leads to all sorts of problems. How we uh, seek to get out of our promises and preserve ourselves. And that's what ultimately ends are resulting in a divorce culture and in a culture that can't keep its word and can't trust each other. Underneath all of these problems, there's what's called a scarcity mindset. That we put ourselves at the centre of our universe and then prioritise protecting and pleasing ourselves rather than God or other people. That's what links all of these things together. Against this, Jesus teaches that we're to be like God. The human beings were created to be like God. In the words of the writer of Genesis, we're made in his image. He breathed his spirit into us. We should put God and others first and prioritise protecting and caring for them. It's a change from a scarcity mindset to a generosity mindset. Not one that seeks to focus on getting stuff for myself and protecting myself, but on giving as much as I can to others and caring for them. And this change affects how we behave in every area of life. And so we're coming to uh, the most famous piece of teaching in the whole of ethical history. Uh, I'm going to make that claim. I know that's a bombastic claim. There aren't many people you can make it for, but Jesus is one of them. Probably the single most famous piece of ethical teaching ever given. Now, as we last week, I'm going to read from several bits of the Bible. I've included readings from the Old Testament, the writings that came before Jesus, to set the scene. And some later writings to Jesus' early followers, reflecting on what his teaching means in practice. It's interesting that actually this piece of teaching here, that we're looking at today and next week, is quoted by, uh, or reflected on, by at least three of the other writers of the New Testament. It made such a big impact on the first century that 
all of the major teachers who followed Jesus reflected on it. You can find it in John's letters, you can find it in Peter's letters, you find it in Paul's letters. All of them, when they were teaching people what it meant to be followers of Jesus, spent some time reflecting on these uh, passages. So let's read. We're going to read first of all from uh, Leviticus. I've not forgotten to do my lunchtime summary, don't worry, for those of you waiting to check out. I, uh, I'm going to do it after, after I've read the readings. So first of all, Leviticus. This is from the uh, law of Israel in the Old Testament. I've picked some verses from Leviticus, but they come up uh, several times in the first five books of the Bible. And they're part of the laws that were given for how Israel's judges should judge cases that came before them. Again, these are famous words. Anyone who injures their neighbour is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Okay, that's from Leviticus 24, but you can find the same thing in several places. Now this is Jesus. This is what Jesus said. If you've got a paper Bible, I would keep your finger in this passage, because this is what I'm going to be talking about mostly. Jesus said this, he said, You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, then turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, then give them your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. See now why I describe that as the most famous piece of ethical teaching ever given. That and the next paragraph. Uh, Anybody's used the phrase, I I, I was going to go the extra mile for you. That's where this is from. Uh, Turning the other cheek, that's where this is from. So then... How did this work out in Jesus' own life? Well, let's read from Luke 23. This is a description of what happened to Jesus as he was being killed. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, means Golgotha, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. So that's how this teaching was lived by Jesus. What about how his followers reflect on it? Well, this is St. Paul. Romans 12, verse 17 to 21. Part of the reason, I, by the way, I read from lots of different bits of the Bible is I want you to see how it fits together as a whole. But actually, we can be tempted to pick out one little bit and say, this little bit says this, and this little bit says that. But I want you to see um, how the Bible is one big story of what God wants for his people. It actually teaches about itself. The best way to understand what one bit of the Bible is saying is to see how it's taught in another bit. And uh, when you do, it becomes this beautiful tapestry that fits together perfectly. This is what St. Paul wrote when he was teaching the early Christians. He said, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I love that. so realistic, isn't it? It's not always. There are some people who are determined to make war. 
And she's like, I just can't do anything that will make you happy. But if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with people. Don't take revenge, my dear friends. But leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Burning coals are a sign of repentance. It's like ash. That's what burning coals make. They put ash on your head. Suddenly you're sorry about something. Don't overcome, don't be overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, in the dads, in the uh, men's group last week, we were looking at making mission statements for our lives. It sounds like a silly thing to do, but it was actually profoundly helpful. If, I would suggest that is a really, really good mission statement to have for your life. If you're someone who's thinking about what is it, what's the big idea that my life is building towards, don't be overcome by evil, but instead overcome evil by good. That's a good principle to guide all your actions. And finally, St. Peter. He said this. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. What I love about the way that Paul and Peter write is that what they're saying is it's not just that we suffer, but that actually you find that your suffering actually produces something good in the other person. Just as Jesus suffered and turned the other cheek and died for the world and it saved the world, so if we put in practice his teaching, it can end up saving and bringing peace and wholeness to other people. So I always try and give a summary of what we're teaching, what I'm teaching this week. And here's this week's. I've gone for something a bit different. Oh. Oh, I've missed off the third one, never mind. I went for three and they run in parallel and in my notes they say because each time. It's cool anyway, you have to just have to imagine it. Because God is just, we don't need to take revenge. Because God is alive, we can be radically generous. Because Jesus is alive, we can be fearless. Because God is just, we don't take revenge. Because God is love, we're radically generous. Because Jesus is alive... We can be fearless. Because God is just, we don't need to take revenge. Because God is love, we can be radically generous. Because Jesus is alive, we can be fearless. The phrase, an eye for an eye, has got a bit of a bad rep. Uh, there's a sort of slightly twee kind of Facebook meme that goes around. You say, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And you get the, you know, it's, it's witty, isn't it? And there's some truth there. If you keep taking out everyone's eyes, eventually you end up uh, blind. But, uh, and I want to say, it's actually got bad rep, largely as a result of what Jesus says here. But I want to defend it for a minute. You didn't think you were going to come to church this morning and hear someone defending the phrase an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You are going to hear me defend this for a minute. In its original context, the rule is actually a good one in its original context. 
It's important to remember that because nothing Jesus says is intended to undermine the law. Jesus didn't come, he says himself, I didn't come to abolish the law. He's not saying the law was wrong. What he is saying is it's not the way we should try and live our lives. It's not the way God intends humanity to live live their lives. When Moses set up laws for the state of Israel, he had to give judges sentencing guidelines. Forgive me for sounding like a lawyer, I can't help it. Okay, every society has sentencing guidelines so that when, when a crime has been committed, everyone knows what the punishment will be. And those guidelines, they usually set a minimum standard and then they set a maximum standard. So, for example, uh, Heather, what's the uh, sentencing guideline for GBH? Do you remember? No. No. <laughs> It's probably changed. Changed three times. So, um, I, as I recall, it's anywhere between uh, five years and life, I think. Okay. So you can have, there's a range of punishments given. Uh, a, a bottom end range, so that judges don't let people off scot-free, and everyone knows that it is, justice is being done, and a, and a maximum end, so that you don't go to prison for, the whole, for your whole life for something very trivial. I'm not saying anything controversial. This is just how sentencing guidelines work. When Moses gave uh, the law to Israel, he understood this. So he gave them sentencing guidelines. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? It's 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 obviously a guideline. If you knock someone's tooth out, that's not as bad as making them blind. Which in turn is not as bad as killing them. Again, I hope I'm not saying anything controversial. Having your tooth knocked out is not as bad as being murdered. If you go with me no further this morning, then go with me that far. Okay, being murdered is worse than having your tooth knocked out. So Moses said, you can't treat those two cases in the same way. You've got to distinguish them. And we'll have a maximum penalty. The maximum penalty that you suffer for doing something wrong can't be worse than the thing you did. Okay, that's step two. So if you knock someone's tooth out, the maximum penalty is having your own tooth knocked out. You can't go any worse than that when the judges are judging. And most often, they actually got to pay compensation. You, you, you re- reimburse the person. Okay? Again, makes sense. They do this in Germany, by the way. This is how the German justice system works as well. They, uh, it makes sense. It doesn't actually help me if I've lost my tooth, if you lose your tooth too. Right? I don't actually get anything back from that. But if you give me some money, I might be able to buy a false tooth. So it had two streams. It enabled people to see that justice had been done. That's actually a really important point in a justice system. It enabled people to see that justice was being done. It's obviously got a sense of fairness about it. Now, we might quibble over whether we think it's right or wrong, but there is an instinctive sense of fairness that the maximum penalty is exactly the same thing you did wrong. And it also prevented cycles of violence. I'll comment on my experience as a parent of this. When uh, children notice that their parents or their teachers, whoever's in charge of them, don't do justice when one person does wrong, they tend to take matters into their own hands. In doing so, they're just being little adults. So, she took my toy, so I punched her in the head, so she kicked me in the back, so I pushed her into the wall, and on it goes. The one thing that will stop that is mummy or daddy or a teacher coming in and saying, no, no, there is a sanction here, you can see it's being done, they're going to their room. But you don't need to deal with this, I will deal with it. But people do this as well, you get feuds. Um, if you've ever seen Romeo and Juliet, you can see how this works out. 
One person kills one person, so then the, the, in return the gang kills two people. So in return the other gang kills three people. And it gets out of control. So Moses wants to stop that happening. So he gives this rule which says, no, as soon as, something's done wrong is, as soon as something wrong is done, it will be punished by the judges and it will be punished in a way that everyone understands is fair. The law is good. It's good law. Over time, because people are selfish, we are selfish, and because we're always looking for what we can get out of life, they took this sentencing guide and started to twist it so that instead becomes a justification for looking for personal revenge or selfishness. Ah, the law says that a judge will uh, mean it's eye for eye, so if you hit me, I'll just punch you back. Instead of being a limit on cycles of vengeance and violence, it was used to endorse them. You hurt me, so I will hurt you. It also got broadened. Became a slogan that stands in the place for trying to get what's mine. I want everything that's coming to me. A Roman soldier can make me walk a mile, but I won't walk a step further. I won't do a, I won't do a, a minute's more work than the law requires. You know, working to rule. In trade union parlance. You, if you can't give me something back, then you won't get a penny of my money. After all, it's an eye for an eye. If you haven't got an eye to give me, I won't give you anything. If you hit me, I'll hit you back harder. It's basically self-centred. It's centred on me. I am what matters, not you. That's why I won't give you the money unless you can give me some back because it's me that matters. And it's self-preserving. I need to protect myself because I can't trust anyone else to do it. Jesus gives a different view. He says to his followers, now you've heard it said that and this is how people apply it, but I want to tell you, when people treat you badly, you treat them well. If they want your shirt... So if they ask for something from you, say, oh yeah, is there anything else I can give you as well? If a soldier says, I need you to carry my pack for a mile, you say, can I, can I take it further than that for you? How can I bless you? In this situation, how can I bless you? Someone strikes you on the cheek, you offer them the other one. He says, when we're made to work hard, we work harder than we were made to. We give money generously irrespective of whether we're likely to get something back. Now it's important to know what he's not saying. He's not saying, never stand up to evil. A kind of quietism that just complies with evil. When Jesus was on trial, I didn't read this because I felt like four readings was probably enough, or five readings, however many I had. When Jesus was on trial, he actually exposes the whole judicial system as being a fraud. So they start to ask him questions, and he's like, well... Why are you asking me these questions? You're not allowed to ask me questions. You're not allowed to question me directly. And in the end, his enemies end up saying, well, he's the high priest, he could do what he likes. And Jesus is like, well, I don't know what else I can say. He resisted. St. Paul, when he was on trial, he resisted. He said, who are you to strike me? You judge me by the law, yet you're disobeying the law. He resisted evil. Publicly exposed what was going on and resisted the abuse. Jesus challenged wrongdoing... But what he always refused to do was take revenge. He always refused to retaliate. He was not looking out for himself, but for others. 
Jesus is always thinking, how best can I love you? But look at all these different ways uh, that people went wrong. Jesus is showing that the problem is fundamentally about how we think about the world. It's fundamentally about how we react to the world. It's not about any particular situation. We think that we're the centre and that we need to protect ourselves. And neither of those things is true. So why do we take vengeance? We take vengeance on people because we think that if we don't protect ourselves, our place and our prestige, then no one will. I need to stand up for myself because no one else is going to stand up for me. I need to make sure that justice is done because no one else is going to do it for me. You can actually see this in societies. Uh, America is a good point at the moment. I'm not anti-American, I'm very pro-American. I just want to say that now. uh, Because what I'm saying could be construed that way. What is behind massive demonstrations against fascism and massive demonstrations by fascists against the left is the belief on both sides that the state will not act against the other. If you ever want to know why lawlessness happens, it's because people believe the state won't do anything. We take vengeance because we believe that we need to look out for ourselves and if we don't, no one will. The Christians know that God is just. He hates wickedness and he promises that he will judge it. This is what St. Paul is saying. You can show love in return for hate because God is just and he says he will avenge. It is precisely because God will judge wickedness, because there is a ruler of the universe who is determined to do right, that we don't have to take revenge. It is precisely because God deals with evil that we don't have to take it into our own hands. Actually, this is a real challenge to nice, comfortable Western Christianity that feels very uncomfortable with the God of justice. There is a phrase when you study um, systematic theology, and I think it's attributed to Emil Brunner, but I might be wrong. He was a German theologian, one of the Germans. He said that if your theology, if your understanding of God cannot stand at the gates of Auschwitz, then it cannot stand anywhere at all. We believe that God is just and that he will one day judge the world. That is fundamental to his goodness. It's not, it's not that God is just on the one hand, he's a judge on the one hand, or he's good on the other. He cannot conceivably be good unless he is willing to judge evil. Now, every single person here knows that, I want to submit. We might feel uncomfortable when we start to talk about it in relation to God, but actually, if you talk about it in relation to someone's children, then you know that full well. How can you be a good parent and never discipline your child? Has there ever been a good parent who refused to tell their child that they'd done something wrong? Who refused to intervene when they hurt another child? I think we would say that 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 parent was a bad parent. Because God is just, we don't need to take it into our own hands. I've spent all week this week at a conference about the book of Revelation. This is how I spend my time. Revelation is totally mad. If you haven't read it and you want to have nightmares, read it late at night. It's full of crazy imagery. Full of crazy imagery, and and intentionally so. Actually, a lot of the imagery is taken from Roman legends and from the Old Testament. It's intended to teach people, on a deep emotional level, 
one or two things. The big message is that actually God is just and that he will judge the world. And that the Christians who were dying for their faith in the first century did not need to worry and they did not need to retaliate because God's got their backs. Jesus challenges us to surrender our desire for revenge against those who hurt us to God and to trust his justice and to choose to love them. As Paul says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay, therefore do not return evil for good. But Jesus also uses the language of generosity. Why do we use our money selfishly? Why do we resist generosity? Now, I I think everyone is probably generous up to a point. But we can give money away, some money away, and yet still have the mindset, the way of thinking, that is self-protective and selfish. That we have to provide for ourselves and look out for ourselves because no one else will. You know, Jesus was talking to people who would give money away. It's obvious from what he's saying. They would give money away. But they would always give money away when they thought they could get something back. The Bible tells us that God is love. He's not only just, he's love. God is willing to provide everything we need. The psalmist says, the poets of the Old Testament say, have God saying, every single cow, every single sheep on every single hill in the world is mine. He's saying it in the context that why on earth do you think that bringing me a sheep in sacrifice is going to make me happy? If I wanted a sheep, I would go to Wales. Because I own Wales, it's mine, I made Wales, I made all the sheep in Wales, they're all mine, so you can't give me a sheep. It's already mine. I gave you the sheep. Thanks for giving it back to me. But I'm, you know, this is what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, if my son borrows sixpence from me and gives it back to me, I'm sixpence none the richer. Right, I've just given back to me what I make. If you're interested in the band, sixpence none the richer, that's where the name comes from. From C.S. Lewis, talking about God. Do you need me to turn that fan off? Okay, okay. I can see, last week there were people gradually putting on more and more arctic layers of clothing. And no one said to me, Phil, can you turn the fan off? Until eventually I turned it off and people started to unroll and goes, oh, thank goodness, winter is over and spring is coming. Weeping has endured for the night, but now joy is coming in the morning. I thought, well, I could have turned it off 20 minutes ago. If there is a God who controls the whole earth, and if there is a God who loves you and me so much that he would die for us, he would not withhold his very life from us. And if that God promises to provide for us, which Jesus does in chapter 7 of Matthew, then we can be as generous as we like. Give. We can change our mindset, our thinking totally, from being, can I afford to give, to I want to give, what do I need to hold back? It just changes the way we think. We can be as generous as possible. More than that, we are obliged to be as generous as possible, to give freely. God has given us Jesus. I'm conscious that I I normally try and sound a bit more sophisticated than an old-fashioned revival preacher, but I'm just going to go for it on Jesus today. Jesus Christ is the single most valuable thing ever given to any person in the whole 
of human history. It is the fulfillment. He is the fulfillment of your soul's longing. Everything you were created to be. Everything eternal about you finds its fulfillment in Jesus and God has given it to you. If I can put it this way, it's like uh, when you want is craving food and then someone laid before you a meal and suddenly you think, oh, it's exactly what my body needed. I feel full and sustained. It's exactly what I needed and they gave it to me. Jesus is your soul's nourishing food. Except that you won't get hungry again. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 4. He gives water of life. If God has given us that, if God has provided so richly for us, then surely we have an obligation to provide for other people. And let me hammer the middle class angle. We live in the richest borough in the country. Now that's not to say that everyone here is rich. I get that St George's Hill distorts the figures and you can make arguments this way and that way. Global poverty is defined as having clean water to drink. If you live below clean water, you live in absolute poverty. I mean, there's lots of different metrics, but that's one way of doing it. If you have clean water to drink on tap, then you are rich globally. I am rich. Now, I get that there are things that we need. We, our housing costs are significantly higher, as far as I'm aware. Huts in Africa do not cost a million pounds for a four-bed hut in Africa. I get that, right? I'm not, I'm not an idiot. But all of this stuff is about self-preserving mindset. As soon as we're making those points, we're in a self-preserving, self-gaining mindset. As Christians, our attitude to money and to possessions ought not to be, what can I afford to give, but what can I afford to keep? Because there are others who need it. You read Philippians 2, I don't have time to read it now, read Philippians 2. The same mind in you which was in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. <laughs> mind and Heather's life this week has been dominated as ever by John Wesley. Um, he's very much the third wheel in our marriage. It's a, it's a distinct achievement to be a Goodsbury in a marriage from 300 years hence. But Wesley manages it for us because I've stayed up every night when I got back from my conference working on my, my latest article. And my latest paper for my master's rather. I don't want to keep hammering Wesley to you, but he's one of the great men of history. He... To give you a feel for this, I'm conscious that I need to make the case for this. He started field preaching in 1739. By the time he died in 1791, he had built up a movement of 75,000 Methodists in, in Great Britain and Ireland and 57,000 in America. On average, that's something like 2,500 people every year coming to faith under, under, under John Wesley. Now, he didn't do all of that himself. Now, I'm not saying that if you don't make 2,500 converts this year, then you failed. Okay, don't hear me saying that. My paper that I'm writing this week is all about the question, why? What is it about Wesley that made this happen? There's all sorts of reasons, and one of the big ones, how he did church, and he built people into groups, that's what I was writing about. One of the things I didn't say, because you can't say this in academic articles, right? you get laughed out of university, but I believe is true, is that one of the reasons why Wesley was so effective in bringing the kingdom of God into people's lives is that he was extraordinarily generous. 
So when we had the offering, I often read, and I read today that passage from Isaiah 58, which said, this is the fast God chooses to clothe the naked and feed the hungry. When you do that, your light will shine before men. I will do the rest, essentially, is what Isaiah says there. Wesley made the equivalent in today's money of millions and millions every year. Right. <laughs> One way of thinking about John Wesley is of the David Beckham of his day. But I'm not joking. Right. I don't mean in the sense of being a pin-up or having the tattoos. But in terms of the amount of money, he kept each year... The equivalent of a salary, I'm trying to remember what it is adjusted for inflation, I think it's something like £30,000 a year. In his money, £23. You imagine David Beckham, now I have nothing against David Beckham, I love David Beckham. If I one day look like David Beckham, I will consider this part of my life well lived. The day he got sent off in France, 98, was one of the saddest of my lives. You imagine David Beckham decided to live on the equivalent of the minimum wage and gave his money away until he had only that much money left. That's what Wesley did. It's not theory, that's what Wesley actually did. To the point where the Inland Revenue, as you can imagine, started to ask questions. And they audited him because they said, Wesley, where is all this money going? You say you've only got, you know, 30,000 a year, and yet we can see millions coming in. So they audited him. Do you know what they found that he had as assets? Two silver spoons. One of them was left in Bristol. One of them was left in London. So that he could eat in both places. Without having to carry the spoon with him and potentially being a victim of robbery. God has given us Jesus, how much more should we give our money and time to others? I want to hammer this, but this is, these are the words of Christ. It doesn't mean giving money when it would hurt someone. I'm, I'll, I'll forestall that objection. It's not, I'm not talking about giving money when people are alcoholics and they're going to spend the money on booze. I, I know that. But it means asking, how can I love you, not what can I get from you? John Stott said, Christians should give precisely to the extent that love allows. That's a very different question from the one we normally ask. Fearlessness. If we are afraid of circumstances not working as we want them to, this is what's behind the go the extra mile thing. But then I'm two miles away from where I wanted to be instead of one, and how will I get back, and I'll have walked two miles. And there's a failure uh, <laughs> at a... Reflection on this when I was at university, which said, if you uh, were tempted to judge someone, walk a mile in their shoes. And that way you're a mile away and at least you've got their shoes. <laughs> we're afraid of walking the extra mile because we don't want to go where we don't want to go. And we don't want to do what we don't want to do. And I think underneath that desire is the fear that if we do, somehow our lives will be derailed. Something bad will happen to us. It's not going according to plan. I've got a plan. I'm going to make it work. And it's not going according to plan. Now I'm two miles away from where I should be. And something bad's going to happen. And what if I get robbed on the way? And I've got to preserve myself. I've got to protect myself. 
But Jesus is alive. That might sound like a non sequitur. If Jesus has conquered death, there's nothing in this life or the next that can separate you from the love of God or his life. Even death is not final, so what are you afraid of? What's the risk? If Jesus is alive, what is the risk? A guy I know who uh, leads a massive church, six sites in Stafford, uh, one of his key values is of risk-taking in the church. He said in a seminar I was in, this is Alex, by the way, the guy who uh, I talked about a few uh, weeks ago, this testimony of the guy who refused to go to the strippers. He said, uh, he said to the seminar, let's imagine that we went too hard and too fast and we ran out of money and the church collapsed. What's the worst that could happen? He said, well, the worst that could happen is my church would collapse and I'd go and work in Tesco's and I'd have more time with my family. And the worst that could happen to everybody else is that hundreds and hundreds of people with a great church ethos and a love for Jesus would go and fill other local churches. So that doesn't sound that bad to me. What's the worst that can happen? Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. What's the worst that can happen? Don't worry if you're forced to go somewhere you didn't want to go. You're forced to do something you didn't plan to do. You're forced into employment you weren't anticipating. You become pregnant and you didn't think you would. You lose someone, you're bereaved, and you can't imagine your world without them. I understand each one of these presents unique challenges that need to be overcome in community with others. But ultimately, don't fear. You can keep going because Jesus is alive. Find ways to glorify him and bless others in it. How should this change how we live? First, don't take revenge. That's an easy one. God is just. He'll look after you and make sure justice is done. So bring injustice and unfairness and pain and hurt back to him. And ask him to deal with it. Prayer is a powerful, powerful thing. Bring it to God in prayer. You can even be as mean as you like about people in prayer. God knows you're thinking it already, so you might as well tell him. He is an obnoxious Burke who's stealing my clients and I really wish he'd get fired, Lord. Right? Now, that doesn't sound very pious, does it? How can he be telling us? How can he be telling us to pray like that? He used the phrase obnoxious Burke in prayer to God. Let me tell you, God's heard worse language than that. God's at this moment present in the East End of London. Let me tell you, he's hearing industrial language there. That's what the, uh, if you read the Psalms, that's what the Psalmists spend half their time doing. I'm convinced that when they are praying, and they're praying the most vicious things, you know, God, they've invaded our country, they have destroyed it, they've taken our children away, they've killed my mother, I'm in exile in Babylon. This is actually in the Psalms. I want you to bring fire down on them, I want you to destroy them. I want you... They're going for it. Why are they going for it? Well, because it's better dealt with with God in prayer than it is you doing something stupid on Monday morning. Better to pour it all out to God than to go and punch the person in the face. Pour it all out to him, tell him how you actually feel, and start then to pray for the people you've been praying about. God is an obnoxious book who's stealing my clients at work. I wish he'd get fired, but oh, I know that you love him and I'll pray that you start to bless him. He's shown me how to bless him. That's how prayer works. God draws the poison from our hearts. He takes it onto Jesus at the cross and then he replaces it with love. Right? That's a degree level theology for you in one sentence. That's how prayer works. God draws the poison from our hearts. He places it on Jesus at the cross and he fills us with his love. So don't take revenge. Start to pray. God is loving and generous, so be generous. 
You think, oh, how can I apply that in my life? Here's here's an application. Give your money away. Give your money away. That's what Jesus says. He says, give your money away. I love that. Jesus is surrounded by very religious people and... um, Sometimes they're rulers of the people and they're rich and they're all stroking their beards. They've always got beards and I've got beards, so strokers. How could we put into place, how we put into action what God says about caring for the poor? It's really difficult, isn't it? Maybe we need structural change. Should we join the Labour Party? Or maybe we should advocate for social justice in the Tory Party. And Jesus is like, I've got, I've got an idea. I've got an idea about how you can care for the poor. Give your money to them. You. Don't worry about the rest of it. You. Give your money to them. That's what's going on with the rich young ruler. He's there saying, Lord, I'm so righteous, I want to do what's right. Jesus is like, oh, that's interesting. You've got all this money and he hasn't, so give him it. How should we apply this in our lives? Go home this week, if you are able to. I'm not saying that if you're in a, if you're in a marriage with someone who's not a Christian, then I understand there are issues there. You've got love and respect your husband and your wife and work it through together. And if, they, if they're not comfortable with this, then honour them, by all means. Where you are in charge of money, however, give it away. Go through the finances and ask the question, what do I need to keep, not what, do I, what can I afford to give? What do I need to keep? When you come across somebody, always ask the question, how can I do all the good I can to this person? It might not be money. It might be clothes. It might be a hug. It might be prayer. It might be having their kids after school. When you think, oh, I can't be bothered. I'll be honest, this is how we think. Right? And you're all sitting there, you all look wonderful, and I'm sure you don't think like this. This is how I think, anyway. Oh, I can't be bothered. I've, got, I've been working hard all week. I've had three play dates this week. I, can't, I just can't cope with another one. And yet I know that that mum is struggling at school, and she can't cope with her kids, and she's got to work, and she could really do with someone looking after them. But, oh... <laughs> so I'll just go and pick mine up, and I'll say, Hi! Can't stop, I've got to get a waitrose. How can I love you beyond what I normally want to? Finally, Jesus is alive. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus in the way I've been talking about today, then this is the most amazing news for you. God made you in the world. God made it. You're designed to be good and beautiful and have life. But we break the world. We break our relationships. We ignore God. And so we will die and we'll have to face up to what we've done before God. But God loves you. So much that he came and died and beat death for you. You can know forgiveness and good and eternal life if you will come to him and ask for it. If Jesus is alive, there is nothing to be afraid of. Even death itself is not the end. If you already know Jesus, what is holding you back? What is your dream of how to serve him? What is the thing that you think to yourself, that's what God wants me to do. I know he wants me to do it. I'd love to be involved with it. But, oh, there's this. What are you afraid of? The worst thing that can happen is that you'll die. And you'll go to be with Jesus and live forever. Hallelujah. I mean, that's pretty awesome. I'm not being, I don't want to be trivial. But I do want to ask, what are you afraid of? I will say this because Paul says, emulate me. 
I'm not saying this, if you knew Heather and my life together, you would know that we're not bastions of righteousness or niceness. But I do want to say, by now, if I had carried on in my professional career, I would be making £250,000 a year. Roughly. At least. Heather would be making close to a hundred. So we would be bringing into our family gross a third of a million pounds a year. Now we wouldn't keep all of that, pay taxes and so forth. We sense God tell us to go and do something that means that we receive from the church a house, which is great, lovely, thank you, and £20,000 a year or thereabouts. Roughly 20000 21000 a year to live on. Multiplied over the ten years, seven years, sorry, that we've been doing this, that equates to us giving up somewhere in the region of two million pounds. Gross. I'm not saying that because I want your sympathy or your admiration. I have no need for either. What I am saying is that God has provided every single step. Well, for some people, that's inconceivable. Our family has grown. We are happier now than we ever have been. We have found meaning in our life in a way that we never thought possible. We have made friends we never had. We live in a better place than we did before, in a nicer house than we ever did before. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Take the risk. Jesus is alive. Because God is just, we don't need to take revenge. Because God is love, we can be radically generous. Because Jesus is alive, we can live fearlessly.